Thank you. It's great to be here with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. And uh, I, I look forward to what the Lord has for us this morning from His Word. Uh, I had an email exchange with Steve, and he mentioned that being together in mission, being together in unity was kind of a theme right now for the church. And so I thought, well, it's Christmas, and it's uh, also um, a mission for this church family to get healthy and reach out and grow. And I couldn't think of a better passage that combines both the, the wonderful story of Christmas, Christ coming into flesh to save his people and binding them together in unity and community. I couldn't think of a better passage for that than Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. And so I'd like to start this morning by reading it uh, to you and asking you to stand in honor of God and his word. You can find this passage in your pew Bible on page 980, page 980, if you want to follow along from Philippians chapter 2. Would you please stand in honor of God and his word? I'm actually going to begin in chapter 1 at verse 27. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. <clears throat> so, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and empathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Trust it with all your heart. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, as we look now to your word, we pray that the Holy Spirit would come and cause this word to come alive and to be written upon our hearts that we might be once again strengthened and nourished and fed by your hand. Help me as I preach and teach and help my friends here as they listen carefully to what the Spirit is saying to the church. God's people said, Amen, Amen. Have you ever been on a great team? Maybe a sports team, a choir, a team at work, where you felt, hey, this team isn't perfect, but we're kind of getting it done here. It's functioning really, really well. Have you ever had that kind of experience? I hope so. Uh, maybe you have to think back quite a ways since the last time you were on a team, a little league team or something, where, where it just seemed to really fit and flow quite well together. Uh, what are the reasons that a team functions well? What makes a good team pull together and accomplish more together than they can separately? Uh, we could think of probably many factors. Uh, I have a son who's a coach, and he could probably give us dozens of, of, of ideas and thoughts on how a sports team might pull together. But what we're after this morning is a little more important than just a winning season on a sports team. What this church and every church is after is uh, a community that's drawn together, centered and focused on the risen Christ, and that is partnering together in mission, the mission that he has entrusted to the church. And for all of that to happen, there has to be a, a fundamental aspect of, of teamwork that is oftentimes overlooked, and it's this, it's having, it's having the right mindset. It's having the right mindset. And that's really what we're going to focus on today, having the mindset of Christ growing in us so that we, as, as Christ's body, gathered and scattered, gathered on Sunday, scattered throughout the week, are working together as a team. You know, when you get a group of individuals together in church, it, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to flow very well. Individualists, when they gather in church, tend to, to um, face different ways in the boat as they're trying to row. You have some facing front, some facing back, some want to row one-handed, some want to row two-handed, some want to go this way, some want to go that way. A group of individualists cannot get the good ship church to go and to flow with the Spirit and to reach any kind of destination. Individualists in the church tend to be very self-interested. They tend to be not other-interested or interconnected very well. 
The church is, is not designed to be an individualistic enterprise. Christians are to share in a rich fellowship with one another and be united together to advance the gospel. But there is a problem, and it's true really with most any team, whether it's a, a work group or a, a, uh, a, a farming team or a sports team, even a choir or a play, there, there can be conflict. And churches are no different. There's friction. There are tensions within all human societies, small, medium, and large. The frost of disunity in a church can really blight the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and it can dampen joy. And when joy is dampened, then a lot of our fuel for mission and service uh, runs out. When we have joy in the Lord together, and we're experiencing and enjoying God, there tends to be um, more than just a bounce in our step. There tends to be actual authority in the words that we share when we share the gospel. There's a there's a, 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 an enjoyment of God, a communion with God, and a joy that we share with one another that is infectious and contagious. I've heard the, uh, the expression of an incendiary fire. I don't know if you've ever heard that, that word, but incendiary fire is a particularly dangerous fire because it sucks everything up into the flame. If it's lacking oxygen, you know, and there's a fire going on and you open up the door, they say never do that. Feel the door. If it's warm, there's a fire on the other side. Because if you open up that door, what happens? It gets fresh oxygen and whoosh, it just sucks everything up into the power of that, that flame. Well, the flame of the Holy Spirit, when He burns in our hearts and the church is united together, is like that incendiary fire. There's a, a, an upward draft and a focus on the risen Christ. And the Holy Spirit ignites our hearts. And our passion for Christ is refreshed and renewed. And our fellowship with one another is, is very upward focused. The result, interestingly, is that others find that very contagious. They get sucked up into that as the, the wind of the Spirit draws people in and uh, in an incendiary way. That's what joy can be in a church family, when we are enjoying God together and enjoying one another in fellowship. Now, for all of that to happen, for that kind of effective, God-centered, Spirit-empowered worship that lifts our hearts up to God, and draws people in and sends them out refreshed and renewed to serve their Lord and all their spheres of influence around the community, for that to happen, there has to be a mindset. And it doesn't come naturally to us. Individualism is so deeply ingrained in the American culture and the American heart, and we celebrate it, quite honestly. We're not a lot different than those Ancient Christians living in a pagan society, in this case, from our text, the, the colony from Rome that is Philippi. A bunch of retired soldiers there. It's a, 
um, sort of the South Carolina of the ancient world. Rome had given it a special status. If you lived in Philippi, you had a passport that was Roman. You had citizenship in Rome. And so a lot of soldiers would, would not be citizens, but if they fought for Rome long enough, they would earn their citizenship. And so then they could retire to Philippi. And there was emperor worship going on at Philippi and, and all kinds of opportunity for boasting in the glory and the majesty and the might of Rome. Paul plants this church. He's writing this letter from prison. He's attempting to build them up and encourage them. He's heard that there's disunity in the church. He's encountered that frequently along the way, and so he wants to impart to the Philippians the mindset of Christ, which is the antidote to the toxin of disunity in any Christian organization. Individualism is a problem. It breeds conflict. And in this passage, we can see there are at least four kinds of reasons why there is oftentimes conflict in the church. First, we know that the world is broken by sin. It's just not a happy place, is it? There's, there's conflict all over the world. And we can oftentimes be very idealistic about the church, expecting and assuming that the church is going to be sort of a, a paradise or an Eden on earth, and we, we forget that we live in a very broken world. And so when we gather on Sunday morning, we bring some of that brokenness with us, don't we? Secondly, we know that unbelievers are enslaved to sin. They're in bondage to it. Now, we as Christians have been set free from the bondage of sin, but oftentimes, we, uh, it's as though we've been you know, liberated out of prison and someone came along and broke the lock off the prison door. And we've been set free from that and the door swings open. But we return back to that prison, don't we? And oftentimes we, we don't live in the freedom that Christ has provided for us through his, his powerful death on our behalf and his resurrection from the dead. So we have the struggle with sin as well. That's the third reason. Believers have remaining sin within us where we kind of go back into that place of bondage that we've been set free from. We don't have to do that, but unfortunately, we are tempted and we fall and we are waging a war within ourselves, in effect, with the world and the flesh and the devil and those influence upon us. So the world is broken, unbelievers are in bondage to sin, and believers still struggle with sin. Fourth, the reason we have conflict is that we're in close proximity with people. It's kind of a practical reason, really. You don't have conflict with the Evangelical Free Church of Anchorage, Alaska, because you don't know those folks. Today, the Internet has sort of brought us together in a little bit uh, in terms of communication, but it certainly has separated us in terms of more arguments and more fighting as people fight back and forth on the internet. Proximity with 
other people breeds conflict. You don't fight with your parents, uh, the parents of, of, of your, your, the neighboring farm down the road. You, you fight with your own parents. And proximity can be uh, just something we need to acknowledge and recognize that we, we are in conflict with, with those that we live with. And so how do we get through this, this scenario of a broken world, broken sin within us that still remains and clings desperately to us, and just the, the fact that we, um, we live together and we acknowledge that because we are around one another, we're going to have issues of disunity that, that arise. We should be aware of that. We should be cooperative, of course, and that's our call. Our, our call as Christians is to advance the gospel in a united way, in a cooperative way, in a way that is marked by, by service, even in the face of opposition. Now, Paul, in this amazing letter of the Philippians, it's, it's, it's marked by incredible joy. And that joy is flowing out of his communion with Christ and his, his passion of spreading the gospel, even though he is, he is under lockdown. The prison letter that he writes is amazing in that he, he pours out his, his love for this church and he doesn't give in to despair. I'm reminded of John Bunyan who spent 11 years in prison. He wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, probably next to the Bible, the most read Christian work ever written. It used to be back in, 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 the, in the old days that Christians read the Bible and they read Pilgrim's Progress, and if they were a little worldly, they might read Shakespeare. Bunyan spent 11 years in prison. Imagine being persecuted for your faith by fellow Protestants and, and, and being in prison. The beauty of that, in the midst of that brokenness, in that isolation, Bunyan's greatest work occurred, the Pilgrim's Progress. Like Paul, he was under lockdown, and yet God was still using him. That encourages me when I think about the, the biography here, is that you know Paul isn't getting out much anymore, <laughs> yet he's able to pray for God's people. He's able to write a, a letter that is so profound and so true, God has inspired it literally through the Apostle Paul in such a way that it speaks loudly and clearly today. So even if you're, you know, laid up a little bit or you're getting older, perhaps you don't get out as much, you can have a vital Pauline ministry of praying for missions, praying for this church, praying for churches in the community, that God's glory would advance in and through His church. Well, today's, today's message is, is really very, very simple. And, and here it is in, an, in a nutshell. Our call as Christians to advance the gospel absolutely requires a united, cooperative service, even in the face of opposition. And that kind of harmony, that kind of 
God-centered joy that, that binds hearts together is only, only achieved through imitating Christ's humility, which is impossible to do. These passages, these verses that I read this morning, more, more scholarship has been done on them, more sermons have been preached on these verses probably than any other in the whole Bible. And, and it is impossible for me as a, as a human being to, to get my heart and my mind down to the depths of what's been written in uh, what's called the Christ hymn here in, in Philippians chapter 2. But it's important for us to revisit it. And, and every Christmas we have this opportunity to reflect a little bit on the, really the beauty and the grandeur of our faith. When, when the Lord Jesus Christ, the divine word of God was in heaven before he took on flesh, he was enjoying all of the the privileges, the perks, the priorities of, of, of being the, the creator through whom everything has been fashioned and formed, through whom all things, Paul says in Colossians, hold together. But it was the Father's plan from before the foundation of the earth that he would come into flesh, the incarnation. Not empty himself of deity, but actually add to himself humanity. And so, as the, the creeds say, he was truly God and truly man. Fully God and fully man. He emptied himself of the perks and privileges of heaven, and he took on human flesh, adding to divinity humanity. In all ways like us, Paul says, except in this one very particular and important area. And always like us, except what? He had no sin. And so every day when, when Jesus got up, he went through the routine of a carpenter's son, just like you and I go through our routines. He was fully man, truly man. And he had taken on that humanity while remaining fully and truly God. It is the most amazing story that we tell every Christmas. And I know that we're, we all try to keep the reason for the season in Christmas, but the reason for the season is that, that God Almighty walked on the earth and, and, and took upon Himself our humanity. And in that, He was able to reconcile us to God through His work for us on the cross. He had to be human in order to be the, the, the perfect Adam who would absorb the penalty and the judgment of our sin. And he had to be fully perfect, righteous, and holy in order to be the satisfaction and the payment that was required. So it's a beautiful, beautiful gospel that's been entrusted to us. And it's a beautiful mission that we have been entrusted with. And as we contemplate during the Christmas season, and by the way, I've, I've brought a little devotional kind of a Bible study that you can use in your devotions or perhaps uh, in your small group. I, I left a copy and they can make some copies of it for you if you're interested that will take you through these verses very, uh, very carefully with some questions to ask 
of yourself and of the text. And uh, feel free to uh, photocopy that and, and, and use it during the week or in the, the, the weeks ahead. But unity is essential. And that's why Paul can say to us that the manner of life that we are to live is to be worthy of this, this gospel of the Messiah who took on flesh. And he says, so that whether I come and, and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, with one mindset, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and, and not frightened by your opposition. It used to be that everybody went to church. Uh, in fact, back in the 30s, if you wanted to apply for a mortgage, you had to put down on the application, and this was in the New York City area even, you had to put, you had to put down on the application the church that you attended because that was a, 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 an indication of your, your character and your connectedness to the community. And your reputation was, was evaluated in part by what your relationships were. Of course, that's illegal today to have that as a test for a mortgage, and rightly so. But my how far we've come from when it was an expectation that a person of good standing would be a member of a, of a house of worship and would engage fairly regularly in, in worship. We've, we've gone from, from, from that kind of cultural Christianity where Christianity and membership in a church was kind of like membership in a club to the extreme now where um, there's increasing hostility, isn't there? towards the Christian faith. There is the same kinds of hostility, not quite as extensive as Paul experienced, but not terribly dissimilar in attitude. There is opposition to the gospel now in a way that uh, we haven't seen in this country ever. We should just assume that that's going to increase, that our children and our grandchildren probably will grow up unless God brings a great renewal or revival to our country, that, that there will probably grow up in a country where there's increasing opposition to the faith. And so how are we as the people of God going to teach them to do what Paul's saying here, to, to stand, to stand together, to link arms together and suffer for the sake of the gospel. Verse 29 says, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, not only believe in him, that's good, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have, writes Paul from prison. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. There's a little footnote in your ESV that says whatever, as kind of an alternative translation to this, uh, to this verse, whatever happens, conduct, your, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. The footnote reads, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Now context, remember Paul is writing to Philippi and the Philippians are very proud of their citizenship in the Roman Empire, many of them are retired military. 
Citizenship is a big deal. Emperor worship is a big deal. But Paul says, that's not your ultimate allegiance. Your ultimate allegiance is your citizenship in heaven. And so, he's reminding them that they're sojourners, they're they're pilgrims, so to speak, that their citizenship in Philippi and our citizenship here in the United States is really, honestly, it's temporary. We, we, We are sojourners passing through this life. And like me, you may have a Illinois driver's license and a United States passport. That's great. I'm really proud of that, actually. I love my country, and I'm proud to have an American passport. When I have to go through the, the line and come up to the table and show my passport, there's a, there's a sense of pride. And when you touch down back in the United States after you've been on a mission trip or something, you're, 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 you feel good about being at home. Patriotism is good and wonderful, and it's good to feel good about our, our country and to, and, and to love her and, and, and to serve her. And yet, our highest allegiance must always be to the kingdom, which is here in part and coming in its fullness. We have a citizenship, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 20, which is in heaven. We may have an earthly passport, but we have a better passport. It's been stamped in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And it marks us citizen of the king and the coming kingdom. And no one can take that passport away from you. It's free. It comes to us simply by asking and by entrusting our lives to the king. Asking for his forgiveness, asking for his pardon, and asking for him to make us part of his kingdom. We can have that passport today. Maybe you don't. Maybe maybe your passport isn't stamped today. You can have it stamped in the blood of Jesus Christ today by simply putting your faith and trust in him. Our citizenship in this good and, 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 and glorious, really, country is, is temporary and mixed, isn't it? And mixed. And, and we have a little bit of opposition. We should anticipate that there may be more in the future. So the first thing we need to know, to grow in, in, in unity and to live a life worthy of the gospel is to learn to stand together. This is sort of like a phalanx imagery here that Paul is using. You know what a phalanx is? Maybe you've seen the news recently. There's a riot going on in, in Paris and uh, the, the, the police, they line up, right? They've got the helmets on, they've got their clubs, they've got pepper spray, whatever else they have, and they have big shields, right? Clear shields, and they look through them, and they line those shields up. Chink, 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 chink. That's a phalanx. The Roman army was very famous for their impenetrable phalanxes. They were the, a terrible fighting force that could not be could not be beaten by, uh, by swords because of it. They would line up together, sink together, 
And those phalanxes, if you've seen the movies, are, are impressive, aren't they? The precision that, they've, that they could use in that. And surely that imagery, as Paul is under lock and key, surrounded by the Praetorian Guard, surely that imagery is playing around in his mind that, that the church needs to be, because there is such opposition to the church. There's such a hardened, hearts are hard. Hearts are hard out there. And, and only the, the, the spirit of the living God can soften them. And so the church needs to be united in its, in its message and united in its ministry and united in its purpose, a gospel-centered purpose. So Paul is, in effect, like their coach, and he's telling them, hey, I, I may not get to the battle, I may not get to the game, but I want to strengthen your faith and, and encourage you and remind you that Jesus Christ is, is our leader. So whether I'm there or I'm not there, remember what I taught you, Paul says, strive together, lock arms in the scrum, the rugby scrum, take a stand for Christ. The whole effect of this is clearly for the, the team in the locker room to get pretty fired up on a Sunday morning and as they run out the door to hit the sign, play like a champion today, you know, the Notre Dame sign, and go out into the world knowing that their brothers and sisters at church are united with them in this faith. What a joy it is to know that your brothers and sisters in Christ stand with you. And so we need to stand together. Secondly, we need to, we need to grow in a life that's worthy of the gospel. We need to do that without fear, being afraid, Paul says, or intimidated by people who oppose the gospel. And we shouldn't really be shocked when the gospel is opposed. Our Lord, remember, told us that that would pretty much be the case, that we should expect opposition. If the world hates you, Jesus said, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, Jesus said, the world would love you as its own. The world would love you if you were of the world, but because you're not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. This is straight from the lips of the master. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, guess what? They're going to persecute you. How are we going to respond to opposition? Will we pull together? Will we be united or, or, or divided as the people of God? If we respond together, if we respond with courage, it can become, in effect, a, a sign to those who are perishing that there is a, a, a resurrected king who is coming and there's some things that are worth standing for and it will actually convict those who stand only for themselves. So we stand together in unity. We stand together in unity without fear and we, we stand together in unity without fear, willing to suffer, willing to suffer. And, and we can think of many examples I gave 
the example of, of, of John Bunyan as a, as a glorious example of a person who, who stood so marvelously for the gospel. Maybe you can think of those in your own schools or your own workplace who have, who have suffered for the gospel. I think of the, the fire chief, or maybe it was the police chief, I think it was, of Atlanta. Huge position, imagine. Atlanta's a big city. And he was teaching in his church, and he'd written some curriculum for Bible study that he had done at his church, and it had a particular ethical teaching in the Bible study that all Christians would agree would, would, be ac- would accurately reflect what the Bible teaches, and yet it's not the current, the current ethic of the, of, of the world, and, and he was fired from his job because of what he was teaching and what he had written in curriculum for the men of his church, who was obviously on sexual ethics. And, and the guy gets fired from his job. I read uh, just recently that that went all the way to the Supreme Court, and he actually won uh, on that. So we can give thanks to God that even though there is pushback and opposition against the gospel and against the implications of the gospel or the, the outflow of the gospel, the ethics, the right living, this life worthy that, that we're supposed to be living, flowing out of the gospel, there's opposition there, and yet, and yet um, in God's mercy, that man survived and won a big judgment, actually. Lost his job, but had to take the case all the way to the Supreme Court. And so we're to stand together in unity, we're to stand without fear, and we're to stand willing to suffer. And we're to stand in humility. And I'll close with this, just simply reading to you this beautiful hymn or poetry that comes from chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, where Paul is laying out for them this, this incredible picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying that because we are in Christ already, we can have His mind, His mindset within us. This is really a mind-boggling few verses, and we should spend really the, the rest of the year, you know, the rest of the next year, thinking about these verses. So I'm just going to leave them with you and ask that God would, would begin reminding you of, of the, the grandeur and the bigness of our faith that God would come into flesh and encourage you to take the devotional and maybe meditate a little bit on these verses. We have no time to unpack them. So let me read to you again the the verses that I'm referencing. Chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Have this mind among yourselves that was in Christ Jesus, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You already have it. If you're in Christ, you have it. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that is, to be clung to. 
but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even even death on a cross. Remember, he's writing to Romans and Philippi. The cross is absolutely the most disgusting thing that you could even be mentioned. It was so vulgar that even hardened pagans wouldn't even say the word in polite company. And yet it's the symbol of our faith. It's sitting here before us, it's behind me, it's before me. We are, we are the people of a king who was humiliated on a cross. He was crucified outside the city gates, most likely next to the garbage dump. Might have been nude, by the way, to increase the shame. And, and, and you know how brutal and painful that crucifixion was. One giant spike through two ankles, spikes in, in the wrist. Eventually, you die of asphyxiation as you, you tr- they would try to pull themselves up to get a breath and couldn't make a complete exchange of getting fresh air. And so you would slowly, you would slowly asphyxiate and, 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 and drown in your own carbon monoxide. He made himself nothing. He went all the way. All the way our Savior went. All the way, he died for us. And therefore, God exalted him. His humiliation, his exaltation, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we're painfully aware this morning that, as the Scripture says, you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. We're aware that when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. We're reminded that Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We, we see clearly in, in, in the life of Christ that it is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Help us, says the Apostle Peter, clothe ourselves, all of us, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Help us, God, therefore, to humble ourselves under your mighty hand, that at the proper time you you may exalt us as we cast all our anxieties on you because you care for us. Help us to stand, Lord. Stand together without fear willing to suffer, filled with the joy of knowing that our citizenship can never be taken away 
And we have a good and glorious king who has risen from the dead and who is coming perhaps even soon. And we bless his name this morning. We worship him with spirit and truth. And we say, even so, come, King Jesus. Redeem your people from across this planet. And break the power of the devil over your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.